Welcome to The Every Lawyer. My name is Juliette Tetro-Provence. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Today's episode is close to my heart as we are discussing YLIP, the CBA Young Lawyers International Program, or YLIP, places upcoming young lawyers and law graduates from Canada at internships with overseas organizations working in the areas of law reform, human rights, and access to justice. The program has been funded by Global Affairs Canada as part of the Government of Canada's Youth Employment Strategy. YLIP interns contribute experience, expertise, and skills to host partner organizations. The host partner organizations offer legal interns practical experience, helping them develop skills and perspective in justice and development. Today, we have the pleasure to be with Stefan Kent, the country manager for the International Development Organization in Mongolia, that we will call it IDLO in this podcast. We are also with IDLO's communication expert in Mongolia, Agi Somber, and Abdu Murabi, who is a YLIP intern who was invited to participate to the meetings, which we will discuss more in this podcast. So first, I'd like to know, where is everybody based right now? Where are you? Are you uh, So Abdu, you told me we're in Calgary. Stefan and Agi, where are you? Well, we're both based and working out of Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, which is Mongolia's capital city. Agi probably knows a bit more detail about Ulaanbaatar, but it's... Um, Mongolia is a fairly small country, about three and a half million people, but more than half of its population are, are based and live in Ulaanbaatar. Okay, nice. So, well, thank you very much for joining us then from Mongolia today. So, Idlo Mongolia organized in uh, November an exposure visit to see a best practices in Ontario family courts to future implementation in Mongolia. This exposure visit falls under the gender-based violence and Domestic Violence Project at IDLO. I understand that the project seeks to strengthen the domestic violence response in Mongolia. How IDLO is going to work with the justice sector and justice sector actors to achieve this objective? Good question. So it's not so much a matter of going to work with, it's we have been working with. Uh, the project started in early... January 2019, pre-pandemic, funded by Global Affairs Canada, of course. And so over the course of the last three years, the project wraps up soon in the next uh, four months here, end of March 2023. Overall, we've been working to strengthen survivor-centered approaches across Mongolia's justice chain. And we're doing that generally in three ways. We've produced a couple of research products, uh, a trial monitoring research product and kind of a justice chain analysis to better inform our approaches. And then we're working with justice sector actors across the justice chain. So we're working with police, prosecutors, judges, for them to better apply survivor-centered approaches when it comes to responses to domestic violence. And then we're also working, a big part of the project is working with uh, civil society in Mongolia. And we can talk a bit more about what we're doing with civil society later, but kind of the, the first responders, the, the folks on the front lines, the folks who are often responding first to uh, survivors of domestic violence, we're working with 
and training civil society as well. And then finally, there's a large awareness raising component kind of across the court system and publicly and in um, Mongolia's more rural regions um, to better inform them of the tools and resources that they have um, if they're having issues um, with domestic violence. Okay, so it's a lot of a sharing of uh, experiences, uh, as I hear you. And you say so the project will end in uh, March 2023. And uh, do you know if this is going to be uh, expanded or uh, is there any chance uh, that there's like, follow-ups on this? Yeah, so we're, we're excited. We've had, um, we've had a commitment from Global Affairs Canada to extend the project and introduce a phase two. So that, that will run for another five years. And so as we are in the process of kind of wrapping up this initial project, we're also consulting with stakeholders, partners, and uh, building uh, a phase two as we speak. So that's very exciting as well. Oh, that's very nice. I mean, I'm very, I, mean, I ask this question because I know that it's always, you know, better uh, to have those long-term projects, even for sustainability and for everything that, that is built. So it's very great. Congratulations. And I'm very, very glad to hear that. So the question I had in mind was, why Mongolia? Uh, yeah, so um, as far as I know, um, Idla, has, Idla Mongolia has successfully implemented, uh, I mean, before this GPV project, another domestic violence project funded by the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs of the United States successfully, which attracted the Global Affairs Canada's attention. Yeah, and just to add um, what Stephen shared about IDLA in Mongolia, um, IDLA began its operation uh, in 2012, and Mongolia exceeded IDLA as a member party in 2015, and we officially signed a host country agreement with the government of Mongolia in 2021. So our work in Mongolia specifically focuses on SDG 16, Justice, five, gender equality, and eight, which is economic growth. And I think just to add, oh, sorry, just to add to what Aggie was saying, in terms of Mongolia's context to sort of why there's this substantial commitment from Canada, both with this current project and with, with phase two to come, is that, I mean, domestic violence, as it's, it's an issue across the world, but it's particularly acute in Mongolia, And I, it's, it's not a particularly recent study, but it's still a kind of powerful marker in that the UNFPA, the United Nations Population Fund in 2017, did a kind of large survey. And in terms of the findings out of that survey, close to 60% of Mongolian women who are either married or in an intimate partner relationship will experience domestic violence in their lifetimes. And so those numbers are shocking. And we also know that through very severe lockdowns during the pandemic here, and Mongolia was sort of a, an outlier, they, they were on top of things quickly, very restrictive lockdown kind of from the beginning. We know that caused kind of a, what's been termed a shadow pandemic in terms of domestic violence here in Mongolia. So we know that those kind of rates increased as families were forced to kind of be together throughout these lockdowns. 
the shadow pandemic, as you say, that that's something, I, unfortunately, that I think we found in the many parts of the world. Like did Idlo, for instance, conduct a study themselves before the project to know more about the justice system sector, how it worked, and how, for instance, women had access to justice when they were survivors of domestic violence? In terms of informing our interventions, we rely on research that Idlo produces itself. But we also, I mean, this this initial project that's just wrapping up now, it was largely informed by our previous work with uh, the U.S. State Department. And uh, that kind of fed into the building of the proposal. But then kind of right off the hop, we conducted uh, a kind of wide-ranging uh, trial monitoring research project. And then kind of throughout the first couple of years of the project also did our our justice chain analysis and findings, recommendations from both those, both that research and our previous work, as well as Idlo's work globally, and then other actors in the GBV response space in Mongolia. That all that all is constantly feeding in, including consultations with our stakeholders, CSOs, so that the project is as dynamic and flexible as as it can be. I'm wondering also, uh, so I understand that you've been there so now for a while. What is uh, an exposure visit? Like, do you do that often? Is it something you do every year? How does it work exactly? Because I've never heard, uh, we don't do that in, uh, in the NGO I'm working with. So uh, I was wondering like what, what it is and uh, what do you do exactly during exposure visits and what are the uh, objectives of such uh, visits? Um, I, can, I can answer this one. So an exposure visit is really an organized visit made by one organization or country or, or whomever to another uh, region just in order to observe or learn from, you know, those communities, organizations, or in our case, to learn from the court system here. Generally, the purpose behind exposure visits is so that in international development is to have the participants involved. So whoever is coming along for the exposure visit, learn about the entities that they're visiting. This can be in order to kind of implement a new similar system or to improve on the current system that they use um, just by seeing what kind of common practices exist in a similar system. Or it could be just to understand the, the social, economic or other factors that contributed to how a system developed in another nation. But generally, the whole concept behind it is to learn and, and, and eventually to use what you've learned to build something or do something with that information. No, we definitely do that. I don't think we call it like that in French, but okay, I don't understand what it is. It's essential, actually, for any uh, international cooperation project, I would say. How do you prepare when you want to do such visit? And why did you decide to do like an exposure visit at the end of the project? Like, did you do some at the beginning? Uh, why in November, especially? Well, I can answer in terms of the timing of it. I can answer that and. Aggie, who did a lot of the work in terms of prepping this visit, uh, can answer the, the second part of that question. But basically, it came down to the pandemic sort of wiped off a couple of years of the ability to take delegations abroad. So that, in some ways, uh, that necessitated us squeezing this in late in the project. But what's great is, is it coincided with my thinking, Idlo's thinking around, okay, what are we going to do for the next five-year phase of this project? 
And so that's kind of exciting because I think it sets the table for the next five years in terms of, okay, we've had this visit, we've learned from these court systems, uh, CSOs that we visited, academics, et cetera, but how do we deepen those partnerships over the course of the next five years so that it becomes less observation and more technical support and uh, best practice sharing? Anyway, so that's what's exciting for me. How do we deepen these partnerships over the next five years? Um, and then, but a lot of work went into the visit. I'll let, I'll let Aggie speak to the kind of the work that IDLO does leading up to a visit like this. Thanks, Stephen. So in terms of the preparation, IDLO has like specific guidelines and methodology on conducting like such exposure visits abroad. And it's also considered as one of the capacity development activities so we need to clearly defining the learning objectives uh, and also planning of this exposure visit includes like um, follow-up activities to review the achievement of the learning objectives and also to support the application of the new ideas. And also the approaches that we apply uh, into the organizing such visits is a participatory and gender sensitive approach. These must be followed to ensure the specific needs of the beneficiaries, which is our delegation, uh, are taken into consideration and that all relevant members are fully engaged and are supportive of the initiative. In our case, we organized this visit in cooperation with Judicial General Council and the Supreme Court of Mongolia, who were very supportive. So the planning stage includes basically the formulation of general objectives, which is concept note document, identifying the host location, institutions, why Ontario province is the, considered to be the best practices, and um, making the appointments with the Canadian counterparts, and selection of the uh, delegation members, and also we conducted pre-exposure visit workshop where we discuss what to expect, what types of questions should be asked in order to, to make sure that learning objectives can be realized. And also logistical stuff, like including finding the best interpreter and such things. Uh, and how can we, you know, how can we make sure that our system, uh, what are the best practices and how, what are the practices that we can share to our fellow legal actors or our fellow lawyers in other countries? And how, how do we make sure that what, what we share is, uh, is very the best practices and and is it really a good idea if you want it i mean i'm i'm doing the uh, devil advocate here because i'm totally <laughs> into it, international cooperation but shouldn't we be focusing on our own issues instead of uh, sharing some practices that we are maybe not even sure uh they are uh, yet the best practices so you just you just did mention that and i'd like to to go deeper into that question well i can um I can answer, you know, the, the aspect of why, why should we focus on, you know, international development when are we fully developed ourselves? Um, I've, I've thought about this criticism a lot, actually. I think ultimately a very, a more nuanced approach is necessary when looking at development in any context, whether it's local or international. Development shouldn't just be focused on the bare necessities, which is something we often do. We do, we give the minimal funding to achieve whatever this is. We should be focused on more long-term sustainable practices. And ideally they should be far reaching. They should be globalized. I think it's easier for us as a society and as a people to address short-term issues with short-term solutions, but 
you know, all the literature, all the research shows that if you invest more in long-term sustainable processes, you generally get by better and it's more economically feasible and efficient. So I think a balanced approach is always necessary. Um, and, you know, local development practices, I think, and their, the solutions that they, they come with, the issues and their solutions inform international development and vice versa. So I don't think you can exist in a vacuum and say, hey, let's just solve our problems first, because, you know, we've been doing that for hundreds of years. Maybe it's a bit arrogant to think that we can come up with the solution on our own, right? Abdu raises a good point. I mean, it's maybe simplistic to say, but the world the world's a neighborhood now. And it's the metaphor I think of is, of course, in our own homes, there's always more we can do to make our homes uh, safer, um, a more vibrant place. But we're surrounded by, hopefully, we live in places where we're surrounded by our neighbors and we interact with them and we see their issues and problems. And um, and our instinct, I hope, and I think it's a very Canadian instinct, but it's not just Canadian. It's, it's a global instinct to when our neighbors in, in trouble, we want we want to help um, because we know we have our own issues and we can strengthen each other and support each other. And I think that ties into kind of, uh, and Aggie can probably articulate this better, but a very Mongolian ethos, a nomadic herder ethos is um, when, when a neighbor comes by, you're, you're inviting them in and you're feeding them and sheltering them and you're providing them help kind of automatically. Um, and so I, I think there's something to that. You can feel that, that ethos and that ethic here. You can't ignore your neighbors. Yeah. And, and just to add on to that, like from, from a fundamental perspective, it's 2022, you know, I can, I can book a flight to anywhere in the world. I can communicate with anyone in the world. Um, the world is much more global than it used to be. And we only seem to remember that with the negative effects of globalization. Like, for example, how the Ukraine war has cut off supply lines to wheat or barley or whatever we need. Um, and, for example, COVID with the, the lack of raw production materials available. So we, we only seem to kind of incorporate this globalized view when we realize that we're receiving the negative effects, but we can receive the positive effects and give them to. Um, for me, I think uh, Canada is a peace building nation on the international stage and what it likes to be. Um, it's too late in the game to be isolationist, really. What I, I've heard, I've heard that this week is that Canadians, we're aware also of our great privileges and uh, we don't want to do nothing with them. I mean, we are fully aware and I think it's good to be aware of the privilege we have and you don't want to just sit there and be like, yeah, well, we can do that, but we won't share. And I think it's good to also, and what I hear from what you say as well is a sharing of experiences, because I believe that Idlo is probably also learning uh, from, I mean, you talk about the ethos of the Mongolian tribes and being sharing with the neighbors, which is 
already is a great is a good example of like sharing here experiences practices also i know that some lawyers who are not working in international cooperation sometimes they just wonder well how uh, can two different judicial system uh, with uh, two different culture two different contexts can actually uh, go and work together and share best practices so uh, can you tell us a bit more what kind of best practices you've been sharing and how actually both systems can benefit from each other when these visits work work um, and when they have impact is when there's kind of sharing, there's best practice experience sharing from both parties. And there's lessons to be learned from uh, the Mongolian judicial system that can be applied in Canada and, and certainly vice versa as well. And what I like to see on these visits and I and what I think happened in, in this visit is that there's Uh, there's a dialogue. And I think in particular, what I've been struck by in terms of Mongolia's judicial system is it kind of seems strange to, to put it this way, but I think there's a lot of uh, flexibility, dynamism and responsiveness with our, with justice sector actors. And so IDLO works closely with, the the police here investigators uh on the ground who are investigating domestic violence cases for example and the, we work closely with the prosecutor general's office who are are prosecuting these cases and we work closely of course with judges because this was primarily a judicial delegation and what what i've found and what i've been struck by and i've only been here a year is the willingness to dialogue amongst those actors and And when there are recommendations backed by research, the willingness to say, hey, yeah, let's 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 work to change this. IDLO works in the anti-corruption space as well, kind of enhancing. And one of our goals of our anti-corruption work is enhancing international cooperation. And in the context of that project, for example, the question arose, oh, there's no kind of comprehensive mutual legal assistance law in Mongolia. There's kind of scattered regulations that don't necessarily align. And so bringing actors together, they were willing to say, hey, let's create a kind of comprehensive law that kind of aligns and refines uh, how we seek uh, mutual legal assistance from other jurisdictions. And there's just that sort of willingness. You, you, see, it, you see it with our partners. So Supreme Court Justice Batsurin, who who joined the delegation, who's part of the Supreme Court's criminal chamber, there's just a willingness to to be flexible, to be dynamic, kind of within what's normally and typically a, a very rigid uh, justice system. And so it's the people who are who are bringing that dynamism, and I think that's really the strength of the justice system here. So I hear the strength here, the willingness and the flexibility, the willingness to learn as well and to share. Um, any challenges you have faced or you are expecting to face in your uh, second phase? <laughs> Lots of challenges. <laughs> yeah, where to start? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of challenges. And um, I remember we were um, discussing the... The challenges specifically in uh, in terms of establishing um, specialized courts in Mongolia with our delegation members after coming back to Mongolia. And we see that there are pressing needs 
to train and specialize the judges in domestic violence and specifically in family matters and improve laws and regulations. But in terms of establishing specialized courts like in Ontario, of course, there will be a lot of challenges, specifically in terms of state budget and finance. And uh, Mongolia is a sparsely uh, populated country uh, with around uh, 3 million population, it, uh, which means like in you will see only four people in, in one mile, you know. And uh, such geographic and territorial factors of the country And since COVID-19 pandemic, Mongolia has started um, austerity measures to prevent such recession as as the country's economy is not in a good condition. And in terms of administrative divisions of Mongolia, the country is divided into 21 provinces and the capital is divided into nine districts, which means like one court per province So the number of the judges and judicial workloads are the things we need to consider. Also, uh, certain homework needs to be done before the creation of specialized courts in terms of improving laws and regulations and preparing uh, and training pool of specialized supporting professionals working with victims of domestic violence and families and children, including psychologists, social workers, and courts support stuff, etc. So I guess IDLAW will continually champion in this area to see the results as uh, IDLAW's key priorities are the rule of law and people-centered justice and victim-centered approach. That also brings me to um, so the challenges you've mentioned. You have a project that will go on for five more years, but then how do you, how IDLAW ensures sustainability in its project? Usually, but especially in that project? So uh, in terms of the sustainability, um, for the GBV project, uh, IDLA tries to ensure the project's results sustainability through uh, strengthening the capacity of Mongolian um, counterparts and secondly, building networks and linkages amongst uh, key stakeholders and also supporting the institutionalization of the project's initiatives. Um, So a number of significant capacity-building efforts have also been built into the project. We can name a few of this. Um, among them, the capacity development of justice sector actors, uh, which Stephen mentioned earlier, to apply a victim-centered approach in cases of domestic violence. Specifically, the judge's curriculum was accredited by the Judicial Training, Research and Information Institute. Uh, it's an institute that operates under the Supreme Court of Mongolia. And also another capacity building carried out by IDLAW is uh, legal aid training for primary advice and legal assistance providers. So specifically, the lawyer's curriculum on providing legal assistance to domestic violence victims was also accredited by the Mongolian Bar Association. Also, um, as Stephen mentioned earlier, we conducted this um, trial monitoring activity. So as part of this activity, we trained Mongolian civil society on trial observation and monitoring, which makes the Mongolian CSOs well-equipped to conduct such activities independently in the future. Also, as part of the project, uh, we supported the establishment of this forum of the CSOs to promote gender equality and advocate for the rights of the victims of GBV and domestic violence. Currently, there are around like um, 68 members from from 20 provinces across Mongolia, and 70% of them located outside of 
Yubi, the capital of Mongolia. And many members of the NGOs are service providers and they advocate for the well-being of victims. Uh, they provide necessary support and assistance. And they are also involved in the public uh, legal raising awareness activities. And also members engage networks in joint advocacy and referral activities, which helps to enhance their strength in um, common endeavors and ensures, ensures the sustainability of the partnerships. I would say. Uh, and, and do you also provide, I, because I, I learned of that when I started to work in international cooperation as well, the importance of uh, trainings of trainers so that the, the, the people I see, Stefan is like, yeah, okay. So that's also something uh, you do. Maybe can you a bit share what is uh, training of trainers and what you do uh, in that aspect? Idlo kind of, well, I wouldn't say pioneered, but I, 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 feel, I, I feel as though Idlo is kind of on on the edge in terms of developing a, a strong, sustainable training of trainers model. And so, I mean, IDLO started in the early 80s as, uh, you know, three, three lawyers who wanted to provide training to justice sector actors kind of around the world, I think initially in the Sahel, but now we're a global intergovernmental organization. But through the years, I mean, capacity capacity development is is our bread and butter, and we've kind of refined the way we conduct and carry out training of trainers across the globe. We've refined that, and so we have online models, we have offline models that are flexible, adaptable, that we can kind of punch in the content that's needed and kind of tailor it to the trainers that we are training. And I mean, at base, if people have never heard of training of trainers, if they're not in the kind of international development space, it's it's essentially the principle of teach a person to fish, like that, that kind of model. And it allows you to reach, it, it kind of has this, um, an exponential impact in that these trainers are trained and then they can continue to conduct these trainings if you have institutional buy-in after the project has completed or that particular aspect of the training has completed as well. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, that's that's something I, I find very, very useful and interesting. I didn't know that IDLO was a kind of a pioneer, so that's even more interesting. Uh, thanks. So I, I would like to go back, so because I kind of jump around all the questions because I was just into what you guys were saying, but I would like to, to well, a bit of, um, you know, we're, we're, we, we work in law and everything, but it's also international cooperation. It's also about a bit of a programmatic and, uh, and the, for instance, the policy. So um, the, the project, like many uh, GBV projects that are funded by Global Affairs Canada, uh, fully aligns with the uh, Feminist International Assistance Policy, the uh, FIAP or FIAP. So I would like you uh, to share with uh, with us a bit, you know, like the beaba of this policy. So when it was created, what it aims for, uh, and uh, what impacts it had on international cooperation in uh, general. I can I can talk your ear off about the FIAP, so I will. <laughs> um, but it's it's a it's a federal forward thinking policy focused on gender equality and women and girl empowerment. What it really is essentially is an it's an in integration of the the concept of intersectionality within Canadian foreign policy. It was adopted, I believe, in in June 2017 um, after 
a pretty pretty lengthy consultation process. Um, I think they they got in contact with about fifteen thousand staff members from organizations overseas, like the IDLO, for example, and across about sixty five countries. So you know a lot of work went into developing the FIA, um, and you know at its core, it seeks to eradicate poverty around the world, or at least contribute to the, to its eradication by addressing inequality and and ensuring that women and girls really are able to reach their full potential, um, taking into account all the barriers they face. It's really a very modern policy in that it goes hand in hand with the UN, UN Sustainable Development Goals, um, which were mentioned previously. But even though the policy itself kind of identifies gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls as, as paramount, um, I think they, they use the terminology core action area um, they use, they have other action areas that are, you know, also important or, you know, action areas that they think that if they focus on, um, within the policy that they will, this will give rise to, um, you know, lowering inequality and empowering women and girls. And like some, for example, some of these action areas are human dignity. So focusing on hum- humanitarian action around the world, health, nutrition, um, education, pretty important. Um, some some other action areas are inclusive governance, which you know IDLO is very in tune with, um, ensuring that countries are democratically um, run, that everyone gets a say, um, endorsing really the rule of law and good governance around the world. And I I think in terms of IDLO, the most important one is peace and security. Um, so promoting these inclusive peace processes and combating gender-based violence across the world. Um, you know, when I, when I speak about peace processes, for example, you know, research shows that if you have women involved in the conversation, the peace building process, the, the likelihood that whatever peace process is, whatever achieved peace process lasts more than 15 years increases by 35%. So, simple things we can do to make the world run much more efficiently and better for everyone. Do you feel like there has been a shift in a project or in a cooperation or in the focus uh, in the past years? Yeah, well, um, it's, it's relatively new, but even without kind of going into the nuts and bolts of everything, at the end of the Harper administration in, in about 2014-15, less than 2 million in funding was spent on gender equality. Um, the FIA promises 150 million over five years. So just comparing those two numbers, you're going from less than 2 million to 30 million per year. Um, and that, that doesn't even cover all the other side projects um, that Global Affairs Canada funds, um, for example. And, you know, like, ultimately... It encourages international legal cooperation simply because of what it will achieve. Um, it, it, it's estimated that growth led by women can contribute to a $12 trillion increase in world GDP. Now, that means absolutely nothing on its own, right? But um, if you take the world's GDP in 2021, $96 million, that's almost a 12%, more than a 12% increase in GDP by really just making sure that processes are more inclusive, 
um, take into account everyone who's going to be affected by them. I didn't know that number. I'm going to keep that one in my back pocket. It's a good one. It's a really Sounds good, good. <laughs> really good argument to have more women at the table, right? Around the negotiation table. That's very interesting. But but you do you did mention though, uh, you know, between two governments. So how how can we make sure as um, a as a civil society or as advocates for this uh, and that we I mean we see you you name it the importance of having of fighting uh, GBV of having projects relating to uh, empowering women and girls but how can we make sure that once we have in I don't know if we have a new government eventually that we keep oops, this uh, international uh, cooperation legal cooperation continues to have this great focus on the women's right, girls' right, and the, making sure that not only women and girls, actually, everybody, that everybody uh, is concerned in a, you know, in, at the table during peacemaking processes, but also in the international legal process in general. I know it's a hard question and I don't have the answer, so I don't know if you do. No, no, it's, I mean, hard questions are good, are good questions. Um, you have to, I mean, you have to be clear-eyed in terms of, political shifts and priorities of a given political party. And I mean, I don't want to delve too much into that, but I think ensuring that, you know, this FIAP remains kind of front and center in terms of our international cooperation and development, I think it comes down to not just being able to articulate the strengths of the aims and the policy drivers of FIAP. It's, it's not just a matter of um, articulating that in and of itself. I think it's a matter of uh, demonstrating the specific impact of these projects. So FIAP has led to, I mean, it led to the funding of this GBV prevention project in Mongolia. And I know it's led to similar initiatives across the aims of that policy around the world. But I think what it comes down to is demonstrating the results of those projects and not just on a spreadsheet or in a report. It's taking the evidence of that impact that you've gathered and telling a story. And, and I think that's what lands with politicians. That's what lands with the public you gather this evidence of the impact of your project, but what it's a matter of articulating what story that tells it's gathering the evidence and then brokering that evidence. And, and, and so it comes down to communications. It comes down to, to advocacy and the people who are carrying and those messages and telling those stories that matters too. Yeah. 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 And you just touch upon, like I was going there. So thank you for that. When you say advocacy and communication about the projects that we do. And I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said, Stephen. Thank you. And I don't know if uh, Aggie or Abdu, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I can totally add to that. Um, one of the, the key kind of factors that, that the FIAP seeks to incorporate is comes from a gender-based analysis backdrop. So a lot of the policies we make tend to be, I mean, let's face it, we, we've been a country that has been run by men for hundreds of years. And a lot of these policies have been historically made by men to serve men. Um, so, so, you know, incorporating a gender analysis backdrop to everything allows you to look at these policies or, or whatever, if you're creating new legislation and, and see how it will impact the 
people it's going to impact. Um, and I think, you know, one of the key aspects of the FIAF is that it's, it's cross-cutting. So all the initiatives that Global Affairs Canada deals with across all the action areas I mentioned should be developed and in, implemented in a way so that they can ensure continuity. Um, you know, when a new new administration comes in and says, hey, um, we don't really agree with this. No, we've done studies, we've done research to show why this is more effective. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Abdu. I, I am listening to you for sure, but now there's... <laughs> I'm distracted too, don't worry about it. <laughs> just joined us. Um, just so listeners know, my, my son has joined the chat, so... Great. That's nice. perfect. Everybody's welcome to this podcast. So that's very good. Uh, but but no, Abdul, yeah, you're totally right. And, and I think you, you, you're you kind of talking about here the, uh, I, I, in French, is the analyse, the ACS plus, the analysis that, that you have to do to make sure that the projects you have has uh, an impact that takes into account the realities of right holders. And I'd like to know, like in this specific project, did you have a chance to, to have a bit, uh, you know, to have a talk with or to discuss with uh, some victims and survivors of domestic violence? Or, or did you have a chance to talk with uh, NGOs working with them, uh, if not directly with uh, the survivors? Yeah, we actually, so during the exposure visit, we visited a few organizations that specifically deal with victims of gender-based violence. We visited the Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic in Toronto, as well as Luke's Place. And they, you know, they some, a few of the organizations exclusively deal with these issues. So it's, I think, having an informed kind of backdrop to your initiative is, is the most important thing you can do, or else what's the purpose of the initiative, really? Yeah, yeah, what's the purpose is just totally, I totally agree, Some. Would not agree, but I totally agree with that. And um, Aggie, because we talk about what would be the point of a, having a project if you don't, you know, have a, a background, if you don't talk with uh, the right holders or, or people who's going to be really impacted by this project. Well, I'd like also to talk to you about, because I understand you are the uh, pro of communication and I understand, well, we know that advocacy and uh, doing all these uh, nice projects to uh, increase uh, access to justice, to make sure that judges uh, do not have those stereotypes, they are more informed, etc., Uh, well, it's very great and we can strengthen the legal framework. But if we don't talk directly or if we don't make sure that uh, victims and survivors are not informed of those great initiatives and if we, we, we don't communicate with them the project and, uh, and what has been done, then they will not trust more the legal system and we will go back to uh, where we were at the beginning. So do you have any strategies that have been used or you are expecting to use to, to, you know, to, to share this project with Mongolian people in Mongolian communities in a women, if, to women and uh, girls who are living in a remote areas of the countries. Yeah, thanks, Julia. So um, while um, implementing this uh, public legal awareness activities as part of the project, we had a chance to meet the victims and um, grassroots service providers, civil society, shelters. And um, the interesting that we found out was that most of the victims, uh, they tend to don't know about the domestic violence and they have no idea that they are victim or survivor of the domestic violence and they would think that it's something okay to happen to them because they don't know the signs and once they come to the shelter like uh, after reporting to the police they feel more empowered and it's 
the first point where they start to think of receiving help from professionals or um, legal service providers, and they would start to think that, oh, actually, I can have a divorce. I can have a lawyer. Uh, this violence is not something that I should be tolerating for all my life. And they also see other women in the shelter, and they realize that they're not alone in this path, and other women experiencing the same thing. Uh, so our um, goal of the campaign was to reach such victims and also uh, provide uh, the legal awareness materials, uh, contents, and informing of the services available for them before uh, in an initial early stage rather than only uh, wasting time and uh, making it difficult, you know, the severe until going to the, to the shelter and uh, indeed, the domestic violence is still considered a very hidden crime in Mongolia with very less reporting to the police. Uh, and also statistics shows that only 5% of domestic violence cases goes to court. Uh, or in other words, meaning just 2 in 10 cases get resolved at the cor- um, court proceedings. So there is a lot of underreporting. As part of the project, we uh, developed the Family Center website as part of the campaign, um, it's familycenter.mn website. It was a collaboration with the uh, Ministry of Justice and Home Affairs. And the goal of the platform was to provide uh, information, advice, and help the families to assist families in building better relationships, to promote gender equality, and prevent domestic violence. And we hope that this new resource uh, will increase understanding of legal rights among the victims and the risk groups and serve as a like, hub for gender-based violence resources in the country. And the website also allows resources addressing root causes of domestic violence, gender stereotypes, services available, and list of service providers and support for Victims. So it's really important to collaborate with grassroots, civil society, legal clinics, and shelters, and especially Bak and Horos. Uh, it's the smallest administration unit in the provinces to reach the herding community. So we still have a challenge to reach those in the remote areas, as herding community um, is the majority of the population. And I kind of feel like the, the website you've been mentioning or, or what you're doing is also about uh, preventing instead of always being in reaction of something. It's also about preventing. So talking about gender equality. Uh, so it's very interesting. And I think it's an important tool. And also I, I, I hear that there's a kind of a holistic approach here. So you share also resources that are not just legal, but uh, for sure as well. Uh, I, I'm guessing here, but medical and, uh, and, uh, and also psychosocial support and uh, I see Stefan being late. So, okay, that's so that's very that's very great. I mean, that's uh, that's uh, very interesting. Uh, thank you, uh, Aggie, for that. But I'm sure there are still some challenges. But you guys now have five more years, so that's very great. <laughs> and so I would like to to finish because, well, with uh, well, you've been very generous of your time, but I still have uh, I would say two more questions. Uh, could you tell us a bit more, like? Uh, 
how can you have a career in a legal international cooperation? Uh, where do you start? Do you have any tips? I mean, Abdu, I know you are part of the uh, Young Lawyer International program. So maybe you want to share a bit about your experience uh, to this program. Uh, just uh, for our listeners, it's a program with the CBA. So maybe you'd like to share a bit about this experience and maybe Stephen as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um I, I think having a, a career in legal international development or cooperation ultimately stems from desire. You you have to want to do it. It's not something that that's just going to come your way. And I mean, it might. It's, it's happened to people, but don't count on it is what I'm saying. There's no. So when you go through law school and, you know, you, you have hundreds of classmates, there's a traditional pathway for you to follow. Um, but there's no traditional pathway for, for young lawyers to necessarily follow when it comes to getting involved with international development. I mean, most people I know that manage to make a career out of it are really open-minded. So that's one thing. Um, and take your chances when they come. Um, you might not get a second chance at something. Um, where to start? I think, well, like the Wilet program is probably a great place to start. At least it was for me. I think the most important tip, though, that I can give is just to keep your eyes open for any opportunities. So if you're interested in working with a specific organization, follow them on LinkedIn, follow them on Facebook, get to know, A, what they're doing on a daily basis, and B, if any opportunities arise, you'll be first to know. But most importantly, never be afraid to get to know people or ask questions about how others came to be in their position. I think that's essential. Yeah, I, I think Abdu is a good example about how you set about uh, seeking an international career. And sorry, you're you're hearing my kids in the background, but I'm just going to plow to plow on. It's uh, it's it's Chinggis Khan's birthday here, so it's uh, I think it's uh, his eight the eight hundredth anniversary of his of of his birth. And so um, my children are at a French school, but they get Mongolian holidays and also uh, French holidays. So they're often at home. But anyway, I just want to, Abdu, I just want to say Abdu is a great example about how you go about starting an international career. And I just have to echo, I, I was really glad that we had the opportunity abdu supported as a rapporteur and questioner and participant in this delegation to toronto he wasn't he wasn't afraid to he he wasn't afraid to uh connect with the delegation to to make himself useful he he was bold in terms of his questioning he didn't think um oh i have to keep my mouth shut and just uh pretend i'm a junior lawyer um, and so, and that's what it takes. It takes, yeah, openness, a willingness to connect, um, to put yourself out there. And yeah, when those opportunities arise, um, to, to go for it. And so often in early days, it comes through internships or um, it may happen during law school itself. But it's just, I think it's also a realization too. And as someone who studied in a Canadian law school like, like Abdu, it's, um, it's a willingness to realize that there's not some linear path as a lawyer, um, especially in this day and age where, where technology things are changing so rapidly. There, it, it's, it's not a mountain, as a teacher said to me once, it's not a mountain, it's more like a climbing wall 
where you're kind of up and down. And if I think if you view your career that way, um, then there's a lot more opportunities. Like when I was in law school, I started, I summered an article at a white shoe law firm. Um, and then I was on, on the regulatory side. And then my wife went overseas and I followed her and I was open to opportunities. And so there, as, as they, as the famous play, the Duchess of Malfi, which everyone knows this famous uh, Elizabethan play, but it, there, there are many, there are many paths, there are many paths to seeming glory. So uh, that, that would, uh, so I encourage people who want to have a career in international development. Yeah. Be flexible, be bold, and often go to these places where you want to work. If if you want to work there, be in. You have to be in these hot spots. You can't. Often you can't do it from sitting behind a desk in Canada. So true. Well, thank you so much. I wish I had those advice when I started, and I can say that for myself as well. I mean, I don't want to promote too much Wildlip, but why not? I mean, I also started with Wildlip, and I just had such a great was such a great professional experience for me. I was in Serbia. I remember. So I truly encourage people to go check out uh, what's happening on the, on the CBA website. Uh, but thank you so much. Is there any questions I haven't asked that you would like uh, to share? Because sometimes I just like uh, go some from like one question to another and I, I can I, I might forget something. Maybe you'd like to add something. So it's your, your time here to shine. Otherwise, I'd like to thank you very much. <laughs> um, I, I got no questions, but I'm, I'm just going to talk about the YLIP program just a little in, in case any any listener is kind of interested. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the program itself is executed by the CBA, the Canadian Bar Association, um, but it receives its funding from Global Affairs Canada. So um, pretty cool. I You know, the IDLO is funded by Global Affairs Canada and so is the YLIP program. So I'm just kind of stuck between that. Um, but the general aim of the program is to facilitate young law graduates or young lawyers um, with with any, you know, facilitate them with experiences if they're interested in justice and development. Um, you know, kind of like I don't know how it was for you guys, but coming out of law school or, law school or even after practicing for a bit, you, you become kind of engulfed in the law and less in understanding the factors behind what made the law what it is, how what made the law operate this way. Um, and so when you're working with, you know, wildlife partner organizations, you're pretty much forced to learn and incorporate a more multifaceted approach in problem solving than just understanding the law, applying the law. Um, at least that's my take on it. Um, Yeah, so so any any kind of young lawyers or or young graduates who are interested in the Wildlip program and interested in international development, go for it. Um, why not? Thank you so much. Thank you so much to the three of you. It was very interesting. I'm very glad we had the, the, the opportunity to have a podcast on this great initiative from Idlos and that people could learn a bit more. And maybe we'll have you like in three years so you can share also a bit of like the impacts that you had uh, now after this uh, great project. Um, well, no, in three years, it won't be done. You'll still have two more years. But anyway, maybe we'll have you in three years to talk about this project and the impact it had. Uh, well, thank you very much. And uh, I wish you a great uh, day where So for you, it's the beginning of the day in Mongolia, I think. But for us, it's the end of the day. So uh, a good day to everyone. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks so much, Julia. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Julia. It was really interesting talking to you. <laughs>
Yeah, thank you so much, Julia. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening to The Every Lawyer and my conversation with Stephen Gerald Kent, Abdou Mourabi, and Aggie Somber from IDLO Mongolia. And feel free to reach out to us anytime at podcast at cba.org. Hello, I'm Steve Bujot, president of the Canadian Bar Association. I'd like to invite you to welcome with me Barbara Finley, Lee Nevins, and Judge Kyle McKenzie, among others, to a series of kitchen table discussions on the legal system, protecting its institutions, judicial independence, access to justice, where to start. You can see there's a lot to talk about. Conversations with the President, episode one is out now. And if I may, please allow me to recommend our other great podcast channels, Modern Law, with Eve Faggy, editor of CBA National, and The Every Lawyer, with Julia Tetro-Provencher. Thank you for listening.